My name is Polly Withers. I am a postdoctoral researcher with the CBRL at the Kenyan Institute, the CBRL's research centre in East Jerusalem. My research, broadly speaking, explores the politics of Palestinian popular youth music. My research is ethnographic. I use mainly feminist research methods to approach my topic. Um, the research is currently based on two years of ethnographic fieldwork between Ramallah, Haifa, Amman and now uh, Jerusalem, where I've been for the year with the CBRL Fellowship. My work traces a Palestinian youth music scene. The young people affiliated to this music scene label the music as alternative. It is a small scene, but it's very vibrant and varied, so it's a little bit difficult to offer a um, definitive definition about the kind of sonic uh, music that, that, that structures this scene. But very broadly speaking, the scene encompasses local musical practices like dubka dancing, for example, and reworks these or remixes these through, I guess you'd say globalised, although maybe that word's a bit problematic, but with more widespread musical practices such as hip-hop, psytrance, reggae, electro, and electro music is very big, lots of people use synthesizers. So musically, the scene and its sound is varied, but loosely uh, stylized around this idea of um, being alternative. Um, and I'll come to a bit later maybe what that means. I came to this research uh, topic and question because I found that in reviewing the literature on cultural production in general and music in particular, the current literature that exists tended to reproduce these two frameworks about Palestinian popular culture generally and music specifically. On the one hand, the literature explored cultural production always as though it was protest, about resistance, about high-level politics, usually in relation to um, the dynamics of Israeli settler colonialism, um, but not only, but usually. So on the one hand, you have music as resistance, music as protest, music as dissent, in a, for me, kind of homogenised way. And then on the other hand, you had studies, um, I mean, fascinating studies, really exciting, brilliant studies, but still tending to frame music as a form of folkloric practice so dubka is especially looked at music as kind of the revival or galvanizer of palestinian um, folkloric identities so about the past about remembering about transmitting stories of nakba and things like this through music so for me these fascinating yet um, limited studies tended to see music as resistance or music as fol folkloric identity and then within that popular music was not really until the past five years, gaining much attention, tended to be more, in, in quotation marks, traditional music that was focused on. But when, when music was included, then um, hip-hop was given, given primacy. So I went to the field as a nice little PhD student, expecting to find lots of people making hip-hop and labelling it as resistance or as a form of um, nationalism or a form of nation-building or a tool to construct national identities and what I found was the complete opposite people I'd meet with people with musicians with audience members with fans and this one thing that people kept saying was look I'm, and I'd have my my nice little research question saying is this resistance is your music resistance and everyone always looked so uncomfortable with this and would say yeah look I'm from here I'm Palestinian of course political situation in which we live is everything to me but I'm, I happen to be Palestinian. I'm not a Palestinian musician. I'm someone who happens to be from Palestine. And that for me was fascinating because 
it's uh, these young people for me anyway weren't denying their Palestinianness, but they were saying, "Look, this is so heavy, this burden that I'm carrying the weight of this, of all of these very overdetermined political categories, and then being represented only as though I only and always talk about protests, talk about my national identity, talk about." collective resistance in a homogenized sense so it became interesting for me to think about okay well when is music not about protest or when is it not only about protest so of course music is a a form of protest I mean that's clear but it became interesting to ask okay but what else does it do and what do we miss by only attaching resistance lenses to to popular culture and music in particular so that was the momentum for my study that was what I wanted to find out so I began to think about how youth cultural practices may be producing political identities through non-conventional mediums so trying to explore politics outside conventional political frameworks to look about which emerging political formations are unraveling on the ground and what are the spaces these are creating um, what are the subjectivities these are creating and just what does this mean what does this tell us about Palestine post-Oslo and, and the way in which young people struggle to to maneuver within the spaces that they are both shaping and shaped by so that was the rationale for for the study and as my fieldwork went on and I began to kind of engage with these questions more deeply I I explored three themes, well, four themes. The first was about, okay, why are young people saying I'm, I happen to be Palestinian, given the fact that, for example, poetry of Mahmoud Dawish and um, Sajalana Arabi, I am registered, I'm an Arab. This is all very fronting Palestinianness into cultural production. So why is it that you have this generation of young people post-Oslo saying something very different and using their cultural production, their music, their songs, to talk about and assert identities outside national lines. You have, for example, 47 Souls song, I Don't Care Where You're From. The chorus, the hook on which the whole song reverberates is I Don't Care Where You're From, Where You At. And so this is, again, it's, um, what's important is how you're, how you're epistemically thinking about the world, not how you're orientated in geography and location in place and this, and this big challenge to this fixing of, of identity. Or you have, for example, uh, Tamar Lafar's new song, Johnny Mashi, Mashi in Arabic means walking. Johnny Walker is uh, an American whiskey brand that lots of young people drink. In this song, uh, Tamar is talking about, he's criticizing national categories, and I mean, listen to the song for those who are interested, because he does it a much better job than I do. But he's saying uh, Johnny's walking, so Johnny's Johnny's leaving, he's, i.e. he's exiting the once dominant historic national paradigm, and he's getting drunk. So it's Johnny Mashi, Anna Mashi, Johnny's walking, I'm walking, or I'm leaving, but, you know, there's also the reference to the whiskey. So so anyway, you have this moment that young people are using their cultural production to poke fun at national categories, to um, say, I can't handle this burden of these national categories, or that actually these don't work anymore for us. And so then the question became, well, why don't they work? What's happened to the national movement in Palestine, given the settler colonial occupation on the ground, given the historic dominance of the national movement and what people would say time and time and time again in interviews and in discussions and throughout my field work was that as a direct result of the 1993 Oslo Accords and the Palestinian Authority's subsequent state building project, the core way in which the Palestinian Authority for these young people who are living post-Oslo in Palestine, a core way the, the PA have tried to build or 
enact their state-building project is by taking the historically dominant cultural icons of the Palestinian nation and of Palestinian resistance and put these to work to bolster their own state-building project and in so doing completely sucked the once incredibly powerful meaning out of them to the extent that they're now just these vacuous symbols that have had their their power completely removed from them and so young people are in, therefore incredibly critical or reluctant to hang their own art their own cultural production their own music on categories that now signify something very different to their the role they once had um, so this was my first point, that it's not that these young people are all depoliticized and they want to go and hang out in the bar and make rap music or go to electro parties. It's that actually cultural production or national cultural production no longer functions in the same way anymore. And at least for these young people, work that, for example, foregrounds the kofia or foregrounds, foregrounds eye symbols like the handala and these once kind of very iconic symbols just have been stripped of political meaning and therefore to use them would also to be co-opted to what many if not all um, see as a very corrupt and actually extension of the Israeli settler colonial regime which is now the PA which we have in Ramallah. So that was my first part. So as well as forming identities, non-conventional identities outside of established political frames, I also then became interested in exploring what else is going on internally in this music space. Um, again, with my research question about wanting to expand our focus on the political. So um, just a bit of background. Um, these young people, when I say they make music and they make alternative music, there are four core ways that they define this music. They claim they make music that is not commercial, so it's alternative to commercial music. They claim they make music that is not classically nationalistic or national, um, that it's not about classical Palestinian resistance, and that relates to my, my first point that I was talking about, and that it's not religious music. So, and they variably use these identity markers to describe their, um, their, their particular musical style. Now, in order to circulate, perform, transmit this music, young people across Ramallah Haifa, Amman and, uh, and Jerusalem, although Jerusalem less so because the political context is so much more tense there, but uh, that's a different conversation for a different day, put on shows, parties, um, where they have live gigs, they have live music, they go to bars, they hang out with each other in bars, to, some go to talk politics, some go to have fun and mark the end of a boring working week. And so in the, and they also um, perform their identity through very interesting dress styles that fuse, again, like the musical style, they fuse local um, dress practices with more globalized identity markers, the kind of androgynous skinny jeans that have become the hallmark of hipster culture with more Palestinianized points of departure like the kofia and things like this. So this is this, this is what the space looks like. But as I said, young people go to bars, they put on parties, they go to raves, attend raves, have raves, but they don't just go to any bar or put on any party or put on any rave. The places they do circulate their cultural production are in very, very specifically um, coded cultural spaces that are very rich in what Sarah Thornton, the cultural studies uh, theorist, calls um, subcultural capital. So in these, uh, these, these cultural spaces, particular habituses <laughs> are formed that delineate that this young people's desired for or claimed alternative identities through their consumption practices. Not only, and I'll come to that in a moment, but young people hang out in particular places because 
these are places seen to be where other leftist politicized people go they're not like the um, in inverted commas mainstream or in again in inverted commas pretentious um, cultural spaces that and again in inverted commas others go to these are the cool bars where um, people go because they are politicized not because they're tied up in post-Oslo depoliticizing shifts so this for me was very interesting because on the one hand these young people say we are we stand in defiance to an especially post-Oslo unsatisfying mainstream of commercialized commodified capitalist culture but that this uh, defiance or critique or desire to stand apart from this distinction of otherness of alterity is produced through leisure and through um, styles of dressing and these are of course consumption practices so if we then moving away from the political or the national political lens and adopt a political economy approach um, there are very interesting um, relationships in the scene between the Oslo Accords and the, the mushrooming of um, post-Oslo leisure sites across Palestine, but of course especially Ramallah. So this was my second point in my argument, that while these young people claim they stand in alterity to a neoliberal turn or to uh, post-Oslo commodifications, that this very alterity is of course stabilised and um, it's stabilised through the neoliberal order. So the scene, as well as being very interesting politically in creating non-conventional political identities, is also both a product and a producer of the neoliberal turn in Palestine. So that, for me, was very interesting. If we, you know, through political economy lenses, we see new things about the internal dynamics of the scene. Of course, if it's born through consumption, it becomes an exclusive, albeit marginalised, space. So this is, it's a culturally marginal space in terms of broader Palestinian culture society politics but it's also very elite if you can't afford a guitar you can't make music if you can't afford to pay to go and sit in the bar and drink whiskey with your friends you can't go so participation membership the kind of achievement of these so-called alternate identities are are, are also exclusive um, they instantiate a class project in Palestine that is intimately tied up um, to the 1993 Oslo Accords and the fact that post-Oslo we have a mushroomed Palestinian middle class and people have more time and more money available for leisure. So leisure becomes, in the classic Bourdieu sense, it becomes a, a source of distinction, a, for, uh, a, a site of capital. So that, for me, was very interesting and it led to my third point that I wanted to say, OK, yeah, this scene is tied up in consumption and that's very clear and it's exclusive and it is all these things but we don't want to then just say then just to end with that felt like to me we were falling into this um, again protest or um, cooptation binary that has animated a lot of work on on Palestine that people shouldn't c consume because there's an occupation that um, it's very elitist that it's very middle class and therefore devoid of politics, people are devoid of agency. This just didn't sit right with me. I mean, no one in Ramallah hates Ramallah more than the hipsters of Ramallah. So it didn't it, it didn't seem um, it, it seemed like there was so much more to say that because there these these spaces are political. There's political things going on in them. It's not the end of analysis that okay they're consumption born, therefore they have no meaning. So I was interested in moving away from this class lens or keeping in mind the class lens but to add a gender lens on top of the class lens to, to explore some of the transgressive identity enactments taking place in the scene so yes these are consumption spaces youth go to leisure and only those who can afford or not go to leisure youth 
use leisure to perform distinction, but in these in these sort of semi-public or enclave spaces, if we look at them through a gendered angle, there are really interesting gendered transgressions going on in these cultural spaces and the gendered enactments that take place in them a different to your more normative gendered norms, gendered identity enactments that take place in different spheres, different publics, different spaces. Especially I found that in raves, on dance floors, youth, young people are drinking alcohol, taking drugs, flirting, socialising with one another, relating to one another in even anti-marital terms. And the, the style of dressing, the dress practices are equally kind of subversive to modernist and nationalistic identity enactments, especially these very androgynous styles of dressing, skinny jeans, the hipster sunglasses. If explored through a gender lens, there's, there's interesting transgressions going on there that, that, are, that do reshape or at least bracket more normative um, established gendered frameworks. So, and within this, these, these gendered spaces, there's a smaller, not within these gendered spaces, um, within these youth cultural spaces, there's an even smaller micro queer scene evolving within um, the scene itself. So if you go even, looking at it even in even more depth, there are really interesting um, queer transgressions going on. I was in a party in Ramallah the other day and that it was an electro party and the DJ was spinning or mixing localised Palestinian sounds taken from, for example, wedding songs or sounds from the street, um, things like this, and remixing them to electronic music. I was with a friend and this wedding song came on. I didn't know what it was, but my friend laughed and declared jubilantly, my God, this is amazing. This is lesbians reclaiming patriarchal sounds. And I asked her to explain what she meant and she told me that the song we had just heard was a recording of the song a, a a bride's family a bride's female family members sing to her the night she's taken from her family her father's home to her new groom's home and for my friend at least and i need to look into it a bit more but for my friend at least this enacted a queer reclaiming of this patriarchal sound i mean i should have mentioned earlier the dj um, was queer so you have these really interesting moments or mini scenes being created within this broader scene in which queer subjectivities are also pr proliferating and these are reflected in styles, styles of dress. So this led me to think, okay, this, this scene is on the one hand consumption-based, but on the other hand, there's lots of boundaries being pushed within it. So how do we understand this class and gender? One's transgressive, one's maybe more conformist. So what I then was led to say was that that the scene is is stabilised through the neoliberal order. To be alternative, to have an alternative identity, one has to be largely predictable, to be recognisable as being different. So, yeah, this is part of the neoliberal order. But at the same time, these neoliberal capitalist sites association are also creating spaces in which transgression does occur. So I then, wanted, I then got to thinking that these spaces are liminal. Yeah, they're born out of consumption, but then they're liminal. They're temporary zones in which unconventional identities can be rehearsed and wider norms, either realigned or dissolved or reconfigured momentarily or more, more permanently, but gradually either way. So you have these liminal spaces 
where things do shift and things are things are being done differently but that yeah these are at least a little bit <laughs> complicit with the neoliberals so that was my thing it's about gender and class um, and then finally on a completely different footing I traced what happened or I trace what happens when Palestinian musicians perform in cultural spaces in London so I left Palestine and um, took myself and my fieldwork to London and explored how Palestinian musicians are represented and or rep represent themselves on stages in London. And I found very interestingly that while musicians in local spaces assert, I happen to be a Palestinian, I'm, I'm, I'm from here, but I'm not just from here. I also make music, um, I have an artistic identity, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I have a multiplicity about my identity that is not just nationalistic or not just national or not just about protest. I'm an artist as well as being a Palestinian. That this was really fascinatingly inverted when people were on stage in London. And this was worked in two ways. Cultural bodies in London, arts venues, music festivals, would either use very orientalizing frameworks to represent um, the musicians they were hosting, so very, lots of the language was very culturalizing, focused on things like tradition. And I mean, there's some quite amazing posters that advertise like, this very hybrid band. And, say, and it says it literally implores in the imperative to the reader, see Palestinian traditional dancers perform traditional Palestinian culture. And then the sea, the sea really, it's what really gets to me about this statement because it's so orientalist that there's a passive... Um, object that is up for consumption by the active audience who get to consume what is here in this particular document presented as just timeless fixed tradition of the past inherently and timelessly of the past so either these representations were straightforwardly orientalizing and that's of course depoliticizing but on the other hand um, solidarity groups or well-meaning cultural institutions would foreground the fact of occupation in the documents they were constructing so they would say see the Palestinian resistance band perform their anti-occupation songs um, and things like this and always the imagery in these particular posters would focus on the wall on the apartheid wall um, or on there'd be Palestinian flags everywhere and kofiyas and all of this nationalist imagery that people have said, I'm trying to move away from because these symbols have had their meaning sucked out of them. So they politicised, these, these, these funding figures in London were politicising musicians, but as a way to sell their product. So again, it's an empty politicisation. It's a depoliticisation through, ironically, a politicisation. So there was this very interesting culturalization and sometimes depoliticising politicisation of musicians when they travelled to perform in London to London audiences. And fascinatingly, a lot of the time, musicians are really aware of this, that they have such ethnic capital attached to them. And very interestingly, and you know, it depends how we want to think about this, and you can talk about it forever, so I won't, um, but musicians very interestingly were aware of this and would just would play up to it and say, look, you know, like, yeah, come on, I'm getting a free trip to London. And I... Uh, yeah, I'm getting a free trip to London. I can go to London. I get paid to 
I get paid to do a gig. I'm getting access to global audiences, international audiences, also international people in the music industry, therefore record deals. You know, people need to make a living, so these sorts of things. So very interestingly, musicians would be, to a degree, more or less aware of these dynamics and sometimes allow them to circulate because it was to their benefit. I think that was very interesting and I'm studying it more at the moment so I have some more thoughts for baby L. <laughs> so all in all I tried to make two points in, or I'm trying to make two points in the research that on the one hand n- we need new ways of thinking about Palestinian cultural production music in particular that moves away from these very overdetermined very heavy very top-down very homogenizing political categories to look about what people are doing on the everyday. How do people struggle in today's world? How do they make sense sense of the realities into which they are manoeuvring and that they're negotiating with? And I think that um, paying attention to everyday politics, the multiple structures that people that people into which people are inserted and shape tells us many things that are not so visible if we're just all the time wanting to say this is all protest and this is all homogenized and this is this is everything is uniform and the same so when we can try and see difference I think it, we, we get a richer for me anyway a richer view of of how young people in Palestine are making sense of the really desperate reality in, that they're struggling with today and then my other point was that given the way that music changes often very dramatically when it's circulated transnationally we need not only to ask what does Palestinian music convey but rather why does it convey what what it does? Why are we being asked to accept a particular particular representation of Palestinian cultural production? And what does this tell us about broader power? And in my work on London and the representation of Palestinian mu- musicians in London, we really can't understand this depoliticizing these depoliticizing representations without looking at the politics of British racism. And of course, if you have a cultural body, I mean, lots of these fun these festivals are government funded, so. If you have a government festival full of these people who are presented in very ethnicized categories, then it's in the rhetoric that's been that Palestinian cultural production can be taken so far from its local contours and be used to signify, um, well, to both highlight British racism and then cover it up to pretend that there's no problem in Britain with racism, which of course these whole representations demonstrate demonstrate that there is. So these are the conclusions from the research and what I'm now working on is taking these forward into a book project um, which I'm currently working on writing up.